Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. The most senior person in the U.S. military is always the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. The 20th person to hold that title is General Mark Milley. He was appointed by President Trump and continues to serve under President Biden. I had a chance recently at the National Archives to sit down with General Milley to discuss a wide range of civilian and military issues the chairman now faces. So this is where our Constitution, the original copy of the Constitution, is stored, and it's right over there. So what does the Constitution mean to you as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? Well, for us, and I would argue that for all of us in uniform, uh, you know, we swear an oath, uh, and that oath is to the Constitution. And we're sworn to protect and support and defend it against all enemies, foreign and domestic. Uh, we don't take an oath to an individual, a king, a queen, a tribe, a religion, or any of that. Well, we take an oath to an idea, the idea that's America, and that idea is expressed in the documents that you see here, the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Uh, and that's a solemn oath. Uh, and I and those that came before me and, and those that will come after me, we swear that oath that we're willing to sacrifice everything uh, to protect and defend that document, the idea that's America. So Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, to me, is one of the great titles in Washington. You're the most important military person, but what does that really mean to be the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff? What is your real job? By law, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs Staff is an advisor, uh, an advisor to the President of the United States, Secretary of Defense, the National Security Council, and what used to be called the Homeland Security Council. And it's strictly an advisory role. You're not in the chain of command. The chain of command uh, is the president to the Secretary of Defense, to the combatant commanders, and or the secretaries of the military departments. So uh, the job is strictly advisory. Uh, but at the same time, you're not in the chain of command. You are in the chain of communication. Uh, so routine communications between the president, secretary of defense, and the combatant commanders typically goes through uh, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs. Uh, so you're very much involved, uh, but you have no decision authority. Uh, you don't make decisions per se. You advise uh, the president, SecDef, and the others uh, on their, their decisions that they will make. But to be realistic about it, when the president of the United States wants to do something militarily, he relies on the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. You're his advisor. When he says, I want to do X, Y, or Z, I assume you tell other military officials. So while you're not technically in the chain of command, it doesn't sound as if people are going around you. Is that right? No, typically they don't. But I would say that I am one of the advisors. Uh, the chairman's job uh, is to be the chairman of a body, a group called the Joint Chiefs of Staff, consisting of the chiefs of uh, each of the services, the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marines, Space Force, uh, and, and, and the National Guard as well. And so the, the Joint Chiefs as a body, what I do is I represent their views to include dissenting opinions. Uh, but at any time, any one of those Joint Chiefs, every one of them by law is considered an independent advisor to the President. Any one of them can invoke their right to go talk to the President about a certain topic. In addition to that, the combatant commanders, the field commanders, if you will, uh, they also provide their advice, their best military advice, or what some would call considered military advice. Uh, to the president, and they, they should and, and can and do all the time. Uh, so I am one of several advisors. I'm, I'm what, in the law, it's called the principal military advisor, but not the only military advisor. 
So a couple years ago, you went to see the president of the United States, President Trump, and it was reported that you were probably going to become the uh, Supreme Allied Commander in Europe, a very important position. Um, and you emerged from that meeting as the projected chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Were you surprised that you got that position rather than one that people thought you were going to get? I, I knew when I went over there that I was interviewing to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs uh, and SACUR. Uh, and any other position that the president uh, deemed necessary. The first question President Trump said to me, or the first comment he said was, uh, you're here to interview to be the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. It was myself and uh, then White House Chief of Staff Kelly and, and the president. And we had about an hour-long conversation. And at the end of it, he said, thank you very much. And the following day, he called me and made the offer to have me be his chairman. Uh, and all of us serve at the pleasure of the president. So whenever you're asked uh, for any duty position, as a soldier, uh, you execute the, the will of the president. So when you become the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, does your wife call you Mr. Chairman, your children treat you with greater respect? How does that work? <laughs> uh, no, in fact, uh, uh, you know, I'm very lucky to have met my wife. Uh, and we were married in 1985, and, and she's been with me through thick and thin the entire time. Uh, she's an incredible woman. She's a nurse, still practices as a nurse. Uh, she keeps me grounded, and both my son and daughter keep me grounded. So um, you've had a lot of um, publicity for some things uh, you've had to deal with in your time as chairman of Joint Chiefs of Staff. Let's go through a couple of them. One is um, the events in Lafayette uh, Square. So uh, there you've publicly addressed that, but essentially uh, you did not expect to be seen as a, in kind of political role because that's not your job. Um, is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I found out very, very quickly as I looked forward and I saw the press being set up, I realized it was a political event and I uh, got out of the way. And, and I regret that then and I uh, made comments about it. Uh, you know, some people think, you know, uh, that, that that's an okay thing to be walking with the president sort of thing. Uh, I don't. Uh, that walking with the president's fine, but if it's a strictly political event, and that was, uh, I as, and it's not the president, it's me, the, the uniform shouldn't be there. We have a long tradition going way, way back uh, of an apolitical military. And we, in uniform, must make every effort to remain apolitical, not be involved in the actual domestic politics of the United States. And that was a moment where I realized what was happening and I broke away. Uh, and it's important that uh, I broke away and it's important that I apologize publicly for it so that those in uniform know uh, the standard is an apolitical military. So let's talk about the events of January 6th. I assume you've thought about that a fair bit. Sure. In hindsight, do you think that somebody could have done a better job of protecting the Capitol or somebody, whoever it was, could have done a better job? I'll let the January 6th Commission and all the various investigations uh, do all the postmortems on it. Uh, it. It's obvious to me that uh, the Capitol was breached. Uh, it was a very significant event, one of the most significant events in recent history. Uh, but I'll let the historians and the commissions and the investigators all sort through all that. All right. You've also had Afghanistan. We've withdrawn from Afghanistan after 20 years. Mm -hmm. The exit from Afghanistan was one where uh, we lost, I think, 13 uh, U.S. military in the exit process. In hindsight, could the exit have been um, orchestrated better? There's a few things that uh, could have been done better. Uh, one is the intelligence piece. Um, you know, an army that was on paper 350,000, it maybe came in at 250. No one's actually 100% sure of the number, I suppose. Uh, but an army and a police force that size in a government 
that collapses, literally collapses in 11 days, that was a surprise. Uh, so that's something that we need to figure out. We need to figure out how and why that happened. It almost sounds like a, uh, a Malcolm Gladwell tipping point uh, study, uh, but it's, it's something that we need to sort out. Uh, and why is it we didn't see that? I think that's really important. Uh, another one, I think, is the timing of our response. Uh, so um, we had uh, collapsed most of our military uh, and most of the NATO allies uh, by the middle of July, and the bases associated with them had been transitioned over to the Afghan military. All that went relatively smoothly without many hiccups, and that was going on really for quite a while, uh, probably the better part of a year. And that was going pretty well. So the, the, the NEO is the piece that you're talking about, the non-combatant evacuation. Uh, that is uh, uh, an operation where we ran 6,000 uh, troops, some of which were pre-positioned in the Middle East in the event of that contingency, some of which came from continental United States. Uh, and we deployed them very, very rapidly, uh, took control of an airfield, uh, the Kabul International Airfield, in a hostile environment. Uh, and we did that eight and a half time zones away. We set up 27 intermediate staging bases around the world. And in a very short period of time, uh, less than three weeks, we were evacuating 124,000 people. The first two days, first 48 hours of that, uh, was very dramatic. Uh, people were hanging off airplanes, massing on the airfield. Uh, some of them were in the wheel wells. It was very tragic. And then uh, at the tail end, uh, we, we had uh, an incident where a suicide bomber uh, went up to a patrol or, or a uh, perimeter uh, manned by Marines and killed 13 of our uh, 11 Marines and, and, and a soldier and a Navy corpsman. Um, and that was a tactical event that happened that has strategic consequences. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. So let's talk about your own background. Uh, it wasn't preordained that you would become chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff when you were growing up, I assume. Sure. So your family had been in the military. Your father was in Iwo Jima and your mother was in the military as well. Is that right? Yeah, my dad uh, and mother, they were both in the Navy, actually. My dad uh, was a Navy corpsman. Uh, and then when he finished the corpsman training, um, he went into the, uh, he was assigned to the 4th Marine Division. So he was a Navy corpsman, 4th Marine Division, did the assault landings at uh, Kowaljalin Atoll, uh, Saipan, Tinian, Iwo Jima, saw an awful lot of uh, combat, uh, grew up uh, Somerville, Massachusetts, uh, graduated Somerville High School, and then from high school went right into the Navy to be a corpsman. And my mother, uh, she uh, graduated uh, from St. Mary's High School in Winchester, Massachusetts, and uh, she went right into the Navy as well, also into the Medical Corps, and she served out at a hospital in Seattle, taking care of the wounded coming back from the Pacific. Very proud of their service. Both of them have passed on, but that generation was very special. So when I read about your background, I saw Boston and a very fancy high school, Belmont High School, and Princeton. I figured he must be a Boston Brahmin. 
not sort of wealthy Boston family. Is that right? No, not at all. Um, no, I mean, neither one of my parents went to college, and <clears throat> we grew up in a very working class uh, neighborhood. And um, and my dad uh, never made much money at all. Uh, my mother worked steadily the entire time, which was very rare in those days. Um, and they emphasized sports and education. And I was very fortunate. Uh, went to a, a Catholic grammar school, uh, which emphasized some really good education, had some decent grades, and had an opportunity uh, to go to uh, the school called Belmont Hill, uh, which uh, had a great hockey program. Uh, and I played for a great coach. And uh, and I got recruited by them and uh, played for, for that high school. Real great opportunity. So you went to Princeton and uh, you graduated in 1980 from Princeton. And were you a star in the hockey world at Princeton? And did you think you could go to the NHL or not really? I thought starting out I could go to the NHL and I quickly learned that the competitiveness of college hockey was uh, probably not, the NHL probably wasn't in my future, but I was okay. I was a steady player and I was decent, but certainly not a star. But did you lose a lot of your teeth playing hockey in Princeton or? Uh, not at Princeton, I've, I have lost four teeth. Playing hockey? Playing hockey, broke, broke my jaw in three different places, lost four teeth and uh, probably got more than 100 stitches in my face. So okay. I have a face for radio, Dave. Uh, when you were at Princeton, did a lot of people say, I want to be in the military, or most of your classmates were going into something like private equity or hedge funds sure. or Goldman Sachs? And so were you an outlier by being in the military at uh, Princeton? Oh, yeah, for sure. So I grew up in a neighborhood that emphasized patriotism uh, and the opportunity that this country was an amazing country that, uh, you know, that you have opportunities that are not available elsewhere. So I was, uh, early on, I, I decided that I did want to serve. I wanted to be in the NHL, but I wanted to serve my country as well. Uh, so when I went to school, uh, there was an opportunity to uh, join ROTC, uh, and I did that. Uh, so I played hockey, uh, joined ROTC, and tried to study once in a while. Uh, and in the ROTC program, uh, I was attracted to it. Again, I thought uh, I never thought I'd make a career of the military. Uh, I thought I'd come in and do my four years. I had a scholarship. Uh, do my four years and, and then get out and move on, as you say. All right, so you go into the military, and after four years, you can discharge your obligation, your ROTC obligation, and then you can go into, you know, whatever you want to do. But you decided to make it a career, is that right? Well, I decided to take it in small chunks. Uh, I really enjoyed the military. Um, I was uh, in the infantry and in special forces, and, uh, and I wanted to stay uh, through company command, and then that's captain level. Uh, and see how that worked out. And then once I was a captain and stayed through major, it was just uh, taking it in small chunks. I never uh, had a long-range plan whatsoever, actually, uh, for my personal career in the military. Uh, got married along the way, had children. But I've never looked back, never had a regret, because uh, I've, I've loved the military, mostly about the people that I've served with. So when you're playing hockey, you can lose your teeth, but when you're in combat, you can lose your life. Sure. So when were you first in combat and you thought, I could lose my life? Well, uh, first combat was Panama for me in 1989, but uh, you can lose your life in a lot of ways in the military. Um, the military is a very dangerous occupation, uh, even in, in, when you're not in combat. Uh, so whether it's in training uh, or in combat, uh, our soldiers and our sailors, airmen, and Marines, uh, they're sacrificing a lot every single day, day in and day out, 24-7, to keep this country safe. Uh, so losing your life uh, is something that I think everyone wearing a uniform has to come to grips with. It's not just combat, but for me, the first time in combat was Panama 1989. And when that happened, did you think you could get shot and killed there? Were you worried about that? What did your parents say? 
My father actually was pretty upset. Um, my mother, uh, very religious, uh, she accepted things and sort of the, the Lord will be with you sort of attitude. Uh, but my dad, who'd seen a lot of combat in World War II, uh, certainly wasn't keen on his son being in combat. Now, did your parents live to see you rise up to be a general or some senior officer? No, my mother passed away in the, in the 90s. Um, so I would have been a uh, major, I guess, at the time. Uh, my father did. My father lived to see me be a general. And, and he, my father was always proud of our service or, or my service. Um, and he talked to me about you know, his experiences many, many times. Uh, but look, he was a kid. He was, he was 18, 19, 20, 21 when the war ended. Uh, hit the beach, uh, best friends killed. Uh, just saw some unbelievably intense battles. Uh, and he and I talked about his experiences and my experiences frequently uh, later in his life. Uh, but he was always very proud. He loved America, loved, loved the country, and loved the, those in uniform. So as we look at the military situation the United States faces today, what do you think the greatest military risk the United States faces? Is it from Russia, China, other places? I think it's China, um, and I've said that publicly many times. I think uh, as we look to the future, and, and I think um, we are living in a historical epoch, actually, uh, where we're seeing the rise of a country that is unlike something we've seen probably ever before. Uh, and it's one of the great historical pivot points, uh, I think, that we've ever witnessed, which is the rise of China. Uh, and from the reforms of 1979 and Deng Xiaoping, up till today, which is, I guess that's what, 41, 42 years or so, four decades, they've had an incredible economic run. And with that, they've developed a military that's really significant. Uh, as we go forward uh, over the next 10, 20, 25 years, there's no question in my mind that the biggest geostrategic challenge to the United States is going to be China. Uh, that, that I have no doubt at all. Russia is important, not unimportant at all. Russia has very significant military capabilities. North Korea, Iran are still there. Terrorists are going to be around for quite a while. Uh, but I think China is clearly the most significant geostrategic threat we face. As we talk today, there have recently been some reports that the Chinese have a uh, hypersonic missile yeah. that can theoretically go into space and then come down with a nuclear bomb, escaping our ability to uh, 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 knock it down. Is that something I should be worried about or all Americans should be worried about? Well, what you saw, and I don't want to get too much into the classification of what we saw, but what we saw was a very significant event of a test of a hypersonic uh, uh, weapon system. Um, and it is very concerning. Uh, I think I saw in some of the newspapers they, they used the term Sputnik moment. I don't know if it's quite a Sputnik moment, but I think it's very close to that. So it's a very significant technological uh, event that occurred or test that occurred by the Chinese. And it has all of our attention, um, and we're paying it, it. But that's just one of that's just one weapon system. Uh, the Chinese military capabilities are much greater than that. Uh, they're expanding rapidly uh, in space, uh, in cyber, and then in the traditional domains of land, sea, and air. And they have gone from a peasant-based infantry army that was very, very large in 1979 uh, to a very capable uh, military that covers all the domains uh, and has global ambitions. So. China is very significant on our horizon. But can I presume that the United States has thought of doing a, a hypersonic missile as well and that we are not uh, caught completely flat-footed in our ability to maybe produce something like that ourselves? 
We are clearly experimenting and testing and, and developing technologies to include hypersonics, uh, artificial intelligence, robotics, and a whole wide range. Uh, now if you take a step back, um, what, what we're in, in history-wise, is we're in one of the most significant changes in what I call the character of war. But today, with the introduction of precision munitions, the ability to see all over the world, artificial intelligence, robotics, uh, hypersonics, all of these things together, uh, this is an enormous change in the character of war, and we're going to have to adjust our military going forward. In Asia, mm -hmm. uh, should I be worried about North Korea or not? North Korea, we, we're always paying attention to North Korea because uh, that's a country that's extraordinarily well-armed. Uh, they've got 70% of their military is arrayed within striking range of the demilitarized zone. Uh, Seoul itself is only 27 uh, miles from the demilitarized zone. It's under uh, the missile envelope of North Korea. Uh, and the regime of North Korea is a brutal, vicious, tough regime, uh, very aggressive, and it's led by an individual that's very difficult to figure out. They're always doing provocations uh, over, the, over the course of time, whether it's missiles or, or other things. Uh, so North Korea is something that we always are watching very closely. Our intent in North Korea or China or Russia, uh, we want to maintain a military capability and a diplomatic uh, level of effort to deter war. We don't want any conflict. We want to deter war, but if deterrence fails, we're determined to fulfill our, in, in the case of South Korea, our treaty obligations with South Korea. So far, uh, since 1953, deterrence has worked, and we're hopeful that it will continue to work. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Now, we've heard of cyber attacks from China, North Korea, Russia, in the United States. Uh, we don't know if they come from their military, but the presumption is that some of it might. Um, can you make American people feel good that we have cyber capabilities that are just as good as the ones attacking us? I assume you can't tell us about all our cyber capabilities, but I assume nobody has better cyber capabilities than we do. Is that a fair? I would say that we are the, the world's number one uh capability in cyberspace. But I would also tell you that China and Russia are very, very good, as well as many other countries. Uh, in terms of defense, what we, when, when the internet and, and the cyber world first developed, people weren't thinking of it as a domain of war. They weren't thinking of it in terms of setting up architectures that were robust and resilient for defense. Uh, those days are gone now. Uh, so uh, years ago, we started working on that. Uh, and we have a long ways to go. But we need to make our critical infrastructure, our financial systems, for example, uh, our electrical systems, and many, many other pieces of our, uh, of our national economy, much more resilient to cyber tech because our adversaries are very aggressive in cyberspace. So you have a four-year term. You're about halfway, a little bit more than halfway through it. When you uh, ultimately uh, reach the end of your four-year term, which is all you can have, uh, you will retire from the military. Is that right? That's correct. So do you know what you're going to do afterwards? Something important like private equity or anything <laughs> like that? I, I have no idea. I haven't given it an ounce of thought, to tell you the truth. Uh, I've got a full-time 24-7 job and um, busy as a bee every single day. So uh, I actually haven't given an ounce of thought. So if someone wants a leader, is it better to find a general or an admiral? <laughs> I think as, as the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, I'll opt out of that one, David. Uh, that's like asking me to say, who do you love more, your, your son or your daughter? So 
I, I think uh, leaders come in all kinds of forms, and, and oh, by the way, they don't even have to wear a uniform. Uh, I think you get great leaders in all walks of life uh, and that serve this country in many, many different ways, whether they're nurses and doctors or cops and firemen, uh, no matter who they are, uh, whether they're, uh, you know, like yourself as a financier and a philanthropist. Uh, there's, there's leaders that come in all, all shapes and sizes and stripes throughout the, throughout the country, uh, and many of those are in uniform, and I'm very, very proud of the generals and admirals that are currently serving. Thanks for listening. To hear more of my interviews, you can subscribe and download my podcast on Spotify, Apple, or wherever you listen. Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative, investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio.